Welcome to the Transportation Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk. Today, we're talking to Christopher David, founder and CEO of Arcade City, a peer-to-peer ride-sharing network. He'll discuss how this self-governing driver cooperative is working and talk about their unique perspective on the intersection of rideshare and blockchain. So, Chris, thank you for joining me. Shelby, thank you. You launched something pretty groundbreaking with Arcade City. Why did a company like this need to launch in the transportation space? Uh, It launched in response to some felt needs uh, by myself Mm -hmm. when I was driving for Uber and uh, since starting Arcade City, realizing that these were um, felt also by a lot, a lot, a lot of other rideshare drivers out there. Uh, And that is Uber and these other companies talk a really big game about empowering drivers to be entrepreneurs. But that innovation, that entrepreneurship is severely restricted. Uh, And the big example I give that was a catalyst for me having the idea of Arcade City initially was when I was driving for Uber in mid-2015, about 20% of my customers enjoyed my service so much that they asked how they could request me again. Uh, But it was actually against Uber's terms of service for me to exchange contact information with a customer and transact with them directly peer-to-peer. Now, that makes sense for Uber's business model, but it does not make sense if I am truly an entrepreneur and what will lead to greater job security for me is the ability to develop a recurring clientele of regulars who like me and know me and I can transact with them peer-to-peer and Uber can't take that relationship away from from me. But that is not at all Uber's model. They frown on that. They ban drivers who do that. Uh, So that was what gave me the initial idea. Hey, wait a second. This is a relationship that should be disintermediated. Hey, isn't there a technology called the blockchain that specializes in disintermediating power relationships? And that kind of started the ball rolling for what might a truly peer-to-peer ride-sharing network look like. And blockchain is sort of the logical operating system to underpin that. And so you had signed up to drive for Uber specifically to understand the sharing economy from the from the very front lines, right? Yes, I was absolutely fascinated. Um, and what initially got my attention was I had moved uh, somewhat recently in 2015 to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and I sold my car because I lived downtown and their city had a reputation for being tech friendly and Uber was there. Well, a couple months later, I see headlines in the local paper that Uber was threatening to shut down service in Portsmouth if the local city council went forward with these regulations that were completely incompatible with Uber's business model. And I was just, that caught my attention because wait, why is this most, you know, reputation for the most tech city friendly in New Hampshire, like considering banning the, you know, this huge success story of a company. Uh, And that got me going to city council meetings and kind of arguing on Uber's behalf as like a happy consumer. Um, but then I wanted to like really, really understand the model from the front lines of what's going on in the sharing economy. Why is there this intersection between innovation and government bureaucracy? That's what spurred me initially to sign up to drive for Uber. As I was driving for Uber, yes, kind of butted up against the um, government of Portsmouth, which did end up uh, banning Uber. And there's some interesting uh, headlines from that time in which I was continually actively driving and and kind of uh, identifying other drivers who believed, as I did, that people should be able to transact peer-to-peer. 
But more than that, I recognize that Uber's business model has all of these flaws, like the one I just mentioned. And mm -hmm. drivers, you know, given that we should, I believe, be able to transact peer-to-peer -peer and build up our own recurring customer base um, and make more money and have that kind of job security and job stability that any, you know, true successful entrepreneur has, some alternative there was needed. But yeah, that came out of my direct experience um, driving for Uber and then kind of talking and organizing other Uber drivers who I found out felt the same way. It feels like you've got a, a thread of activism in, in your passion for this. Am I, am I picking up on that right? <laughs> yes. So yes. I would say, I would say in the beginning, I mean, um, Arcade City morphed out of an activism campaign that I launched in Portsmouth, New Hampshire called Free Uber. Um, and we began by kind of putting up flyers, pushing back against this Uber ban, uh, kind of tangling with the local taxis there. And what, what ended up directly, uh, causing me to kind of pull the trigger on Arcade City was the, um, uh, local city council followed through on their effective ban of Uber. The taxis, local taxis, thought that the ban didn't go far enough in prosecuting Uber because their app was still on or whatever. And so taxis organized this boycott on New Year's Eve 2015 or turning to 2016. Um, huge festival, 10,000 people come into town. Um, taxis st staged a boycott, pulled all of their cabs to the neighboring city. Uber was at like 9.9x surge rate. So, you know, here's me and a few, you know, about 10 other drivers involved with this activism campaign. We recognize, hey, wait a second, like there's an opportunity here to demonstrate to people the power of peer-to-peer. -peer. And how we did that initially was by offering people oh. free rides on New Year's. And we sort of, you know, to the extent that we were able to do the couple hundred rides that we did on New Year's Eve, we sort of saved the day. I mean, I picked up a customer uh, couple that was walking a mile and a half um, at 2 a.m. through the snow from downtown to their hotel, out-of-town couple who couldn't find a ride anywhere. Uh, you multiply that by, you know, that happened fairly often there. And so it was just an example to me of how uh, large corporations and governments, when they tangle and butt heads, what ends up happening is the consumer gets screwed. That exact situation played out here in Austin when the governments passed these regulations that Uber didn't like. Uber and Lyft both suspended service in Austin in May of 2016 on 48 hours notice. So with 48 hours notice, 10,000 drivers were put out of a job more or less overnight and tens of thousands of riders were stranded. We recognize that as an opportunity to again prove the power of a truly peer-to-peer -peer ride sharing network and came here. We're the kind of the first on the scene in organizing rides in a completely peer-to-peer -peer grassroots fashion on Facebook in that first week uh, and the network just blew up. We got 10,000 people in the network in the first week um, and then you know a bunch of these other Uber competitor companies came to help try to fill the void here in Austin. Well, fast forward two years, every single one of the 10 or so companies that came here to help fill the void left by Uber and Lyft are gone. Every company, uh, the only exception to that is a local nonprofit called Ride Austin is still here, but every other company has left. Uber and Lyft came back after a year, and Arcade City is the only company that's still here providing reliable citywide service month after month. And that the reason why we're still here, the reason why we continue in slowly gaining in market share, even despite sharing a market 
with Uber and Lyft is because we offer drivers that huge differentiator of true entrepreneurship. Our top drivers here make two or three times what they used to make driving for the big corporate apps. They do it all on their own terms. Our top drivers have shown me Google calendars where they've got the next two weeks fully booked of pre-scheduled rides. I couldn't take those customers away from them if I wanted to. It's a level of job security and stability that Uber and Lyft will never be able to match. The game now is just how we scale and repeat that success in other cities. Going back to the, the anecdote in Austin, then let's talk about South by Southwest 2017 and that Saturday night that everyone seems to talk about that this problem with Uber and Lyft uh, being absent from Austin all came to culmination. And that's when finally, I guess, there was a bigger awareness of this problem. Yeah, it's kind of built. Um, the other apps that launched have all kind of had their own um, performance issues on large events like South By. A lot of apps crash. Um, our network is still largely organized on Facebook here in Austin, which doesn't crash. And so we've been kind of the like rideshare of last resort when the other apps crash. People know that you know there's it's there's the kind of the Facebook network, but also there's this web of personal relationships that drivers and riders have formed. So a lot of people don't even use any communication channel aside from just messaging their favorite driver. Um, so yes, we, we've definitely shown a level of um, resilience. We're not going anywhere uh, anytime soon. We're just trying to look at how to multiply this. Just so I understand, why did the small guys end up leaving Austin? Largely uh, either funding issues or just not being able to generate any kind of real um, market traction. The most recent company that left, uh, kind of the last larger company that was hanging on, is called Fasten. Um, they had um, presence in Boston and Austin. Well, you know, they cite, citing funding difficulties, they sold their company to some Russian conglomerate, and part of the conditions of that deal was that they shut down their U.S. operation. So goodbye, Fasten. Um, the rest of the companies either just like didn't take off. Some of that was in the first year when Uber and Lyft were gone. Others, when Uber and Lyft came back, they got back the majority of their market share that uh, had left. And so there's just no no reason for existing, particularly if your whole claim to fame is being sort of a you know an Uber, but just like with slight tweaks to the model. And that's basically every rideshare company aside from Arcade City. Arcade City has a truly different truly decentralized, truly peer-to-peer -peer model that not only allows us to compete in the realm of rideshare, we have people using our existing network here in Austin for deliveries. Somewhere between three and 5% of the requests made in our Austin network are for deliveries. Uh, we have people who have already used our network in Austin for peer-to-peer -peer home sharing. And we're recognizing that there's a larger play here, which is once you solve the problems of trust, in a peer-to-peer -peer transaction in arguably the most difficult set of transactions within the sharing economy, which is rideshare, aka how do I trust you enough to get into your car late at night when there's no right. large company to complain to if something were to go wrong? How do you solve that problem? We have solved that problem. Um, and once you can solve that problem, it very easily translates into potentially peer-to-peer -peer deliveries, home sharing, and you know, a wider range of uh, services than just rideshare. But we're happy to use, similar to Uber, kind of using 
Rideshare as kind of the battering ram to enter markets uh, and then diversify those markets through food deliveries or whatever else over the long term. Um, you know, we're going to be kind of borrowing some moves out of the Uber playbook in terms of expansion, but our economics are just vastly superior. We don't require millions or billions of dollars in venture capital to be spent on uh, marketing or driver incentives or, or creating the world's largest army of lobbyists. It's, it's just, it's not necessary when you have a, a model with fundamentally more integrity. How specifically then have you solved the uh, customer trust issue or the issue of safety? A couple different ways. One is knowing the people who are in charge of maintaining the quality in your local network and having direct open communication channels to them. If you have an issue with a rider or driver in the Arcade City network, you're not putting in a support request that gets outsourced to some overseas HR department that might result in something for you, or they have a couple buttons they can push to give you a refund or whatever. If you have a problem with a driver, it's going probably to someone that you already know in your existing social network or a friend of a friend who's easily reachable on Facebook or any other basic social media channel. What that results in is not only a level of uh, responsiveness and speed that we think is unprecedented, um, but it also results in a more community-driven dynamic in which people are not just, there's not just customers who are interfacing with a company and it's the company's responsibility to do a lot of things. It creates a true community of both riders and drivers that is self-policing, that looks out for each other to the extent sometimes there are people who fall on hard times and post for a ride and say, hey, you know, I, I can't pay today, but they've been a loyal customer previously. We have plenty of drivers who will go out of the way and making sure that person feels taken care of. Uh, that applies to kind of day to day on the rides piece that applies to um, people kind of using our community to um, make announcements relating to safety or relating to, um, you know, other crazy fun requests like help, please. There's a big spider in my basement and I, you know, need someone to get it out. And, you know, people will post requests and driver will go over there. And just, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a truly dynamic community that has over time developed a series of safeguards that, you know, despite our budget, which is, you know, less than one tenth of 1% of Ubers, we are running a, a true rideshare operation that's been operating for two years with probably a solid lock on about 1% of Austin's rideshare market. Um, and it's sustainable. Uh, there, there have been no major blowups. You might think that something terrible would have happened in the past two years, but, but no, there really is something to this more community-driven rideshare network dynamic. You start to mention the home sharing and even this kind of community dynamic of hey, I need some help doing this or that. Uh, what are some of the very furthest reaching industries or, or uses that you can imagine for Arcade City? Emergency services, certainly. Um, things that you would typically, I, I would start by saying anything where there's sort of a sharing economy app for it, where people, you know, a lot of kind of the stereotypical um, Silicon Valley startup pitch is like, we're building the Uber for X. You know, the Uber for whatever it is. And, you know, there, that has gotten a little bit of traction as, you know, some investors seeking potentially Uber style 
returns or, or having already believed that it's a successful model, we'll sort of tolerate that a bit um, in terms of building up these kind of two-sided sharing economy marketplaces that disintermediate at least partially uh, some of the more legacy uh, marketplaces. And that could be, you know, whether they're freelancers looking for work or house cleaning or dog sitting, dog walking, whatever. There's, you know, any infinity of these types of um, services. But our argument is that the landscape of the sharing economy marketplace is not actually going to remain balkanized into these various different smaller apps with little communities that are separate and siloed. Our argument is that there is going to be some broader overarching network effect that is going to incentivize a lot of these networks to communicate with each other. There's going to be a push, we think, towards a level of interoperability between these marketplaces such that there are not going to be, you know, 100 or 500 of these different apps and teams. Uh, and our objective with Arcade right. City is to, you know, that's partly why we are naming it Arcade City and not, you know, Arcade Transportation is because we're, use, we're viewing rideshare as sort of a means to an end, similar to Uber, to build up a global transportation and logistics network that can then be pivoted and uh, you know, solve some of the basic problems of how people should relate in the context of a decentralized marketplace and then expand that outward. The, the, I think what is going to drive the consolidation of a lot of these sharing economy projects is going to be the transition broadly to blockchain, to de more um, decentralized distributed organizational models and when I say blockchain, I don't just mean blockchain. I mean also there are some very intriguing uh, sort of self-describing as post-blockchain or blockchain alternative architectures that are trying to deliver on the promises of blockchain uh, better than, than blockchain does. But so regard regardless of whether it's blockchain or whatever it is, there is increasingly a trend towards toward leveraging the um, you know very high degree of connectedness in our society to solve technologically problems of how groups of humans can better coordinate with each other and you know do we think that somewhere in that environment in that um, you know potentially distributed economy that outcomes for consumers are going to be superior to you know having the big daddy corporation. Um, doing things. You know, Uber, I think, is a great example of a company that can and should be decentralized and disintermediated and, um, you know, replaced by a network of integrity of local self-governing driver cooperatives who are able to do for themselves a lot of the types of things that Uber kind of regional offices are currently doing for their local networks and to incentivize the people in those communities through things like blockchain-based tokens um, in which people who contribute to the network, whether they're riders or drivers or other types of people, can earn fractional you know, tokens which have monetary value, which they can choose to hold on to for the long term if they want to, or can choose to cash out and sell if they want a little bit of extra uh, you know, cash on top of what they're making as a service provider. Uh, but we just think that once once the technology is in place such that there can be systems that reflect these new distributed architectures and to do it in a way that can reliably scale 
to the point where mainstream consumers can use this without needing to learn about private keys or all the wild, hairy, scary uh, things that you hear about in Bitcoin right. blockchain world. Um, that's what's going to replace these larger corporations. Um, that, that's the basic idea. Uh, you mentioned the, the arcade tokens. Uh, lends me to think, what is the story behind the name Arcade City? Um, it's funny. The sort of initial impetus for the idea came from a, interpreting a provision in the uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire Transportation Code uh, in recognizing that. So, you know, you have these <laughs> ride-sharing regulations that the, uh, the limousine lobby uh, sort of uh, pushed back against, you know, making sure that the definitions were written to exclude limousines. So you have these bureaucrats trying to figure out exactly how to classify um, <laughs> ride-sharing. And in part of the wording of this ordinance, they um, wrote the exclusion for specialty vehicles. And they didn't really define what they meant by specialty vehicles. So in the beginning, it was not only initially was it, you know, these are kind of peer-to-peer -peer free rides that aren't compensation. Well, if we want to do rides for compensation, under the law in our first network, Portsmouth, um, it's fine as long as they're not rideshare vehicles, they're specialty vehicles. So the kind of initial gimmick was, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to put like a Rubik's Cube or some like little game in each car, and each car is going to be an arcade. It just happens to be a mobile arcade, and you can pay to play in the arcade, but if you get a ride at the same time, just kind of this, you know, we're, we, we are going to figure a way, uh, whatever, the, whatever the relevant laws that are, you know, written by and for the, the taxi lobby or rideshare lobby now, whatever that is, you know, we know that the sort of, there is a moral position to take that is two people can connect peer to peer and should be able to connect peer to peer and transact. And that should be really no one's business other than themselves. So arcade, arcade began as sort of like a fun sort of way around that initial regulation. But part of why I, I am happy to keep that name is because of the, the larger idea that what is going to make decentralized marketplaces work in practice is an environment in which both sides of a peer-to-peer -peer transaction are incentivized to provide clear, transparent, truthful information about themselves, mm -hmm. both for a level like sort of self-verification and here's me and here's my social network, uh, but then also to have that platform be able to measure, preferably on some sort of immutable ledger like a blockchain, hey, Joe actually did give rides to 100 people in your local area um, over the past year with an average rating of 4.9. And you can inspect and see on the blockchain, oh, like that actually all checks out. You don't have to trust that some third-party entity is either monkeying with the ratings right. or has a completely opaque and nonsensical rating system like Uber where everyone starts off at five stars and you can't tell actually how trustworthy someone is. Um, the, the sort of blockchain is sort of the logical way to structure a lot of that. You started to mention blockchain 2.0, if you will. Uh, what specifics are you talking about then in in this new form of blockchain? So really people understand what's exactly happening and we're not getting into the... Uh, I can't think of the word. Um, 
Oh, actually, let me ask you. Um, let me ask you. So, do you want to go into more of the blockchain 2.0 stuff? We're at a good stopping point now, but yeah, I want to hit that if that's something you want to talk about. I've got time. All right, so let's go into some of the specifics of what you mentioned in blockchain 2.0, if you will. Sure. So, how I like to think of this as three kind of um, partially overlapping technology revolutions. You have the internet and communications technology, which has liberated the flows of data around the world. You have, starting in around 2008 with the invention of Bitcoin, the liberation of monetary value, as in if you are, you know, uh, someone in the U.S. wanting to send money home to uh, Mexico, do you want to pay Western Union a 25% fee or do you want to be able to just transact instantly, securely, um, as much money as you want instantly to your relative in Mexico and pay approximately no fees at all, assuming there's you know the right infrastructure in place to let that person cash out or whatever. So you have Bitcoin, and this revolution is ongoing. Uh, one of the most um, exciting use cases that a lot of you know sort of institutional investors are excited about in that space is remittances. And how do we, you know, have a more efficient way of getting value moved around the world? Um, there are a lot of uh, sort of uh, institutional players, uh, larger financial institutions looking at using blockchain as a source of truth for verifying financial transactions or data. There's a lot of kind of like, you know, things that are at least incremental improvements over our current financial system that are being piloted and tested uh, but to my mind, the more exciting of these revolutions is the one that's just starting now. Uh, we can call it blockchain 2.0 or a you know truly disintermediate, uh, true disintermediation revolution, which is about liberating all other forms of value. Any value that determines how people relate to each other. So here you have things like uh, self-sovereign decentralized identity, uh, decentralized reputation metrics, um, representing people's mm -hmm. contributions to a system that can be uh, recorded transparently in a way that you can actually concretely verify that that was made. Uh, this is not just monetary value. These are all, you know, a lot of other different forms of value. The leading um, uh, champion of this idea of blockchain 2.0 has been the project called Ethereum, which has been for years the sort of number two cryptocurrency behind Bitcoin. Um, and you know, Ethereum has really gotten a lot of people seeing the power of an, a broader view toward disintermediation and how, wow, like the question then is not what can be disintermediated, it's what can't be disintermediated. Uh, some very dizzying and very fun kind of head spinning uh, thought exercises if you think through, you know, society, governance, all the things that potentially could be run better on a blockchain. The, the challenge and the limiting factor for that is scale. Um, to have this basically, you know, world computer as Ethereum builds itself as, it needs to be able to scale to handle millions of transactions uh, per second. Uh, and it's currently at 10 transactions per second. And so you have all these now, you know, been kind of a, uh, a race that's really started to emerge over the past year of these other 
protocols. Uh, EOS is one of them. Um, IOTA is another one of them focused on Internet of Things. Uh, Holochain is an entirely different architecture than blockchain, uh, which may well deliver on the promises of Ethereum before Ethereum does or before uh, promises of blockchain before blockchain does. There's all this competition now to see which of these platforms, which of these protocols is going to be able to scale to handle all of the load of, you know, potentially a, a large chunk of the world's, not just transactions, but also any kind of device device communication. There's just a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of, um, you know, data flying around that different platforms are trying to, you know, some are focusing on more on um, various niches like IoT, others are trying to be more of a generalizable world computer like Ethereum. Uh, but you know, there are a lot of projects out there that have been raising money um, with the intent of creating a decentralized version of X, whether that is Uber or Airbnb or Western Union or Financial Service X. And a lot of these projects have raised, you know, millions upon millions of dollars. But you'll notice that no one has really produced anything that's being used solidly in production. Um, there might be a couple projects that have a private blockchain that has users doing stuff with it, but that's basically just a glorified private database. Basically, blockchain has not yet been able to scale to the point where we can like really truly put a global Uber alternative on the blockchain. And there are some people arguing now that you know the actual architecture of blockchain may not even lend itself to delivering on the intent of this blockchain 2.0 movement and that it might take a different architecture. We're particularly excited about this one called Holochain, uh, which is built more in line with natural patterns of you know, how things actually scale in nature, um, being a little bit more truly decentralized without reference to a global state ledger. Uh, super exciting uh, uh, project there. But from the perspective of like a, a rideshare startup that wants to expand our Austin network to hundreds of cities around the world, we don't want to do too much until we can get some sort of system in place where we don't need to have people trusting us or waiting on us. If we get the incentives right with these blockchain-based tokens or some of these newer models of uh, mutual credit cryptocurrencies in place such that networks have an incentive to sort of self-organize under this brand and umbrella and strategy of a, a new sharing economy that we're putting forth. Once that's in place, I think you're going to see millions of, of upon millions of users start to flock to this new way of doing things. But the technology just is not there yet. So the name of the game is scale. Who is going to scale first? When the technology is ready to scale, which projects are going to hit scale first? And how are these projects going to relate with each other? Our bet is that there's going to be a lot of people trying to uh, bring various sharing economy projects onto the blockchain. Our objective is to be sort of the um, overarching network of network that can kind of aggregate these people within our gamified system. Um, but it's, it's a race. It's a race for network effect. 
It's a race to see which uh, protocol will be able to deliver on the, the promises of blockchain 2.0. And we all have no idea who will win. So very <laughs> exciting. It is very exciting. So Christopher, thank you so much for joining me. Shelby, thank you. And thanks to you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com industries and subscribe to articles, podcasts, and creative video. Until next time, I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk.